Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 230. And just ahead, Apple reports results, but some results they may be hiding. Caesars Entertainment sees big growth in Vegas and more growth beyond. And a fascinating conversation with Matters CEO Michael Reeves. I mean, if this company can make piping sound interesting, and they do, hey, look, I promise you, this is a cool one, you know, for a change. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to Futurum's The Drill Down, where we explain the business stories behind stocks and a move. Joining me on the mic today is Siobhan Field of Forbes Australia. Hi, Siobhan. Hello, Corey. How are you today? How's it all going? Glad to be with you as always. Yes. Uh, what's, uh, what's the latest with you? What's the latest? Uh, we had our Forbes Australia Business Summit and I moderated a tech panel looking at Gen AI and, uh, you know, other emerging technologies. So it's been a busy week. I'll bet it has. All right, Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? It was a little company called Apple that I think is actually worth, I think we have some insight here that may be not out there in the uh, general discussion of what's going on with Apple. Apple, it trades with the ticker AAPL with a market cap of about $2.8 trillion, up 22% in the last year and up 6% in just the last week. But perhaps most importantly, Apple is down about 2% in after hours trading after reporting earnings today. So Corey, what is the story with Apple? All right, so big picture, Apple earnings out uh, $89.5 billion in revenues, but that was less than last year, down about 1%. Not great. We might have known that was happening. Fantastic margins, some of the best they've ever had. But uh, shrinking sales, not good, and the guidance wasn't great. The next quarter is going to have 12 weeks when the same fourth quarter last year had 13 weeks, calendar fourth quarter, so whatever. But the weakest part of the results was Mac revenues at $7.6 billion, down 34% year over year. Now, there were some reasons that a lot of sales were packed into the last quarter last year, but I want to hear what Tim Cook had to say about that. Now, Siobhan, as you may have noticed, listeners, as you may have noticed, Apple did this weird thing where at the last minute they announced a new line of Macs to be released in a few weeks, but did it just a few days before earnings. That might have been a hint that the Mac numbers were going to be bad and they wanted to say, don't worry about what just happened. Worry about what's going to happen. Don't look over here. Look over here. Yeah. Uh, here is Tim Cook, the Apple CEO telling us exactly that. We're thrilled to have announced the M3 lineup uh, and get the new MacBook Pro and the new iMac out there. Uh, we couldn't be more excited about it. We, with the, uh, the, the lineup that we've got and the compare issue that we don't have uh, during Q1, we anticipate a uh, a significant acceleration in the in the Mac space for Q1. Uh, to just repeat a little bit about the the circumstances of the the performance last quarter. Uh, in the year ago June quarter, we had a factory disruption that lasted several weeks. The pent up demand that resulted from that was filled in the September quarter, and th that made the September quarter 
not only a record but a substantial record and obviously we're now comparing against that for uh, 23 and and so that I, I wouldn't look at the negative 34 as representative of the underlying business performance is, is sort of the nut of it. All right, but here's the thing. Are these new Macs introduced the night before Halloween really that fast? Well, my new boss, the CEO of Futurum Group, Daniel Newman, is calling this new M3 chip only moderately compelling. I think that says a lot to me. It seems like uh, uh, the chip is more focused on rendering graphics well than processing AI workloads. And this comes right after Qualcomm introduced a stunningly fast PC chip it calls the Snapdragon X Elite. It'll show up on Windows machines in about nine months. The M3 chip, of course, is out just about now in a few weeks. And Apple, again, is calling it the most advanced chip ever built for a personal computer. But it seems like, Siobhan, for the first time in a long time, we're seeing a battle for faster semiconductors in computers, in PCs, in desktops and laptops, the things that we actually use. We haven't seen that in a long time. Nor have we seen a name like that in a long time. A Snapdragon X Elite. It sounds like one of Elon's rockets. That was actually my nickname in high school, <laughs> Snapdragon X Elite. No, no, it wasn't. All right, it was Corey. actually just CJ. <laughs> CJ. You always call me CJ. I did. You've always I, called me CJ. I've, I, I, I do like CJ. You know, my, uh, my colleagues these days call me Shiv, the first part of my name. My really? family have always called me Vaughn, the last part. <laughs> Corey, what's your next trickle, drill down? You mean CJ? What's your next drill down? Yeah, I do. Okay. Well, the answer is Caesars Entertainment. Caesars Entertainment. It trades with the ticker CZR with a market cap of about $8.8 billion. Shares were up 5% in the last week. But for the last 12 months, shares down 8%. What's happening there, Corey? Well, you and I have spent some quality time in Vegas. Indeed we Over have. The years. And I believe we did do some interviews at Caesars. We did. We did. I remember being at the Venetian. AWS. With you as well. That was, wasn't that the Venetian? I think that was at the Venetian. In any case, um, physical casinos in Las Vegas are doing well, just right across the board. Uh, there's a long term trend of discretionary consumer spending uh, moving from buying stuff to doing stuff, experiences with the millennials and all that. Uh, and that's been a, a great source of profit for casino operators, hotel operators, such as Caesars Entertainment and Vegas itself, Las Vegas-based casino operators. I looked at some data from the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority. The last full month of data was from August, but 64% increase in convention attendance. So yeah, things like AWS, conventions are back and, and indeed in Vegas. And Vegas is back, baby. But that's an expression. I'm not calling you baby. Siobhan, to be oh, clear. Oh, I, I get it. Yeah, yeah. No, all good. Uh, but yes, Vegas, baby, Vegas. Well, Caesars reporting Q3 revenues uh, in the last week. They announced their earnings. And and uh, $3 billion up 4% in the last year. But it wasn't just Vegas. They have uh, operations all over from Columbus, Ohio to uh, uh, I don't know, all over Nevada, Biloxi, Mississippi, Elgin, Illinois, Atlantic City. They've got a big casino there. Managed properties in everywhere from North Carolina to um, Dubai. But more importantly, it wasn't just the places. It was places online. Caesars online betting and sports, what it calls iCasino, that business was booming. In the last nine months, Caesars digital business had 700 million in revenues, more than double the previous year. 
And that's now 20% of what the company makes in Vegas uh, in nine properties. Think about it this way. The online business is now equal to about two Vegas hotel casinos and it's growing. Here is Caesars Entertainment CFO, Eric Hessian. Yeah, we feel like uh, from a volume perspective, we had a very solid quarter on both sports and I, I casino up uh, 38%. And keep in mind, we uh, during the quarter, we didn't have our app uh, with the exception of basically for one month uh, as we were putting it in uh, for the first two months of the quarter. Um, so again, most of the upside from the new app uh, is going to accrue, you know, in the fourth quarter and, and into next year. Uh, we feel that there's a lot of opportunity to improve the integration of the various game vendors. That'll give us more insight into the actual workings of the game and see what customers are playing and where the spins are. We also have an opportunity to improve our CRM. Uh, as we mentioned during uh, prior calls up to about a couple months ago, we weren't able to do segmented marketing. And so now with our new app and with some of the new technology, we feel like that's going to really benefit us heading into next year. And then to your point, we are uh, exploring the possibilities of adding another skin to the portfolio. Um, as there are a number of states where we have additional licenses that we've reserved and would plan to potentially roll that out uh, later in 2024. So all of those things contributing uh, to, the, to the overall improvement. But what I would say is that the thesis of the new iCasino app is following exactly the script. We're seeing a much higher uh, percentage of slot players, uh, which if you recall on our prior app, it was heavily table focused. And then as a result, we're seeing uh, improved hold uh, in that particular app, which we think over time will, will ultimately create a whole lot more value for us. So yeah, Caesar's uh, uh, just a monster business offline, but a fast growing business online. And maybe that's about to accelerate uh, thanks to a new app. That is really fascinating. I had no idea their business was was twice as large as all the physical pro- properties, the online business. Well, twice as so you know, 20% of the, of the physical Vegas properties, but still it's uh, growing so much faster. And, you know, you think about what they have to put into to build a casino in Vegas. Imagine that a business online is the size of two of their casinos, uh, casino hotels in Vegas. Um, also looking through the results, it, it is still true that they make more money on gambling than the hotel rooms. Just to be clear, like people sometimes say, oh, they make all the money in the hotel, not the casino. Yeah, no, the gambling. The gambling in the casinos is still more profitable yeah. than the renting of hotel rooms. Yeah, it's it, gambling down here is just out of control. It's it's really interesting in the Australian culture. Um, and I wonder if Caesars have properties down here. I'm going to look into that. Uh, they do not. They don't. I've already checked. Oh, there now. he is, Corey. Always so thorough. Always, you know, on top of things. So what's your Drilling down? Yeah, that's it. What's your next drill down? Let's look at a company called the Bancor. The Bancor. It trades with the ticker TBBK, market cap of about $2 billion. Shares were up 18% in the last week, but for the last 12 months, shares are up 25%. What is the Bancor, CJ? Well, I think that's the question. Is it a bank or is it a fintech wizard of some sort? I mean, it's certainly a South Dakota bank with a charter to do banking uh, based in South Dakota, but it was, and it was really, it was one of the early kind of online .com or net banks uh, from back in the day. But they do a lot of affiliate banking services, checking savings, debit cards, and so on for fintechs, companies like Betterment, Chime, and SoFi. 
Uh, and indeed, it is the sixth largest issue of credit cards in the United States. But I still can't make sense of this because it trades at a high amount. You know, they like to describe themselves as a fintech. That Wall Street certainly likes to think of it that way. And when I listened to the conference call this week, I expected to hear a lot about, well, fintech. I, I, you know, but when I listened to the call, I heard a lot about lending and the balance sheet and footing, which is the balance of debits and credits and securities-based lending lines of credits, SBLOCs. And it's borrow, yes, securities-based lines of credits, which is what it sounds like. It's borrowing against the value of your stock and securities holdings. Not at all risky. Maybe it is kind of risky. But that's bank stuff. And hey, if this was a bank, it would trade at a bank multiple like JP Morgan, like one and a half times book. But instead, this thing is at a, a fintech level multiple, trading nearly double the JP Morgan book valuation. I'm sure if you were an executive of this company, you'd want people to think of you as a fintech, not a bank. But that's the question. Does Bancor sound like a fintech or does it sound like a bank? A listener, you decide, because if it's a fintech, well, why is business slow? Here's the CEO, Damien Kozlowski. So it's definitely slow. You know, the, the sticker shock, the most price, it's, it's consumer, basically. So the sticker shock, obviously, if you're going to go from a zero rate environment to a Fed funds uh, target of around 530, that's, that's dramatic for some people. So the people that can delever will, uh, and that's lessening. So you can see that normalizing the amount that has run off the portfolio has gone down in the last three quarters. And we see that normalizing. So what we expect across the, and we see that in our other businesses too, we see that in leasing, we dodged a bullet with the UAW strike. It looks like that will be resolved. If that went on for a few more months, it could hurt our leasing business. Uh, and we're seeing our pipelines grow in our SBA and our real estate business. So we're expecting across the portfolio around 12 to 15 percent growth, uh, uh, growth in the loan book in our footings, more like 12 in the S block, I block uh, area and more than 15 ish in the CRE multifamily business. Remember, we don't have the big roll off in the portfolio anymore. We had that legacy portfolio. So our total footings didn't grow a lot, even though our new footings did. Uh, so more like 15 in that area and probably more in the middle for leasing an SBA around 13 and a half percent. So we think we'll be able to do that. The, the big uh, economic arrow in our quiver, though, is the fact that we, ha we still haven't bought any bonds and that's not in the guidance. So when we play that out under our normal scenario, uh, that could if we don't hit those targets and the interest rate environment is, is right, we'll buy more bonds. If in a normal scenario where we do get those footings uh, and we start buying bonds in the middle of the year and we're getting about an 80 basis point premium over Fed funds, I think you'd see an, an incremental impact to earnings per share of another 15 cents. So, you know, we've got an enormous amount of latitude uh, in our earnings projection. So when we modeled it out, there's a lot of ways we can get to that 425. So we have a little less origination of course, it's a very ambiguous environment right now, and we've looked at a lot of scenarios, but we feel very comfortable on a preliminary basis issuing this uh, 425 guidance. So if we're talking about buying bonds, we're talking about the balance sheet, we're thinking about the issues of companies like First Republic and Silicon Valley Bank and other small banks that found themselves challenged with the balance sheet um, and rising uh, rates from the Fed. Uh, these are all bank issues, not fintech issues. And I wonder, we'll see if this valuation can hold and indeed if this business, uh, how it will do going forward. But I'm going to start looking at this thing like a bank 
not like a fintech at Bancor. Yeah, that makes sense. It it does sound like from uh, what they're looking at, they're thinking of themselves as a bank in some ways, maybe just not publicly. Okay, Corey, what's next? Well, we're going to get to our guest, the Matter CEO, Michael Reeves. Um, a fascinating conversation about a company that's going through some real big changes, um, uh, selling off some non-core businesses, taking in hundreds of millions of dollars in the process. And they're in just some of the most random Siobhan, coolest businesses. I mean, I just this interview is so much fun. Hang out for this conversation with Matter CEO, Michael Reeves, right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight, ever. With ERA, customize your company watch lists and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A, dot com. Welcome to the Drill Down Podcast. We are back. We're joined right now by Michael Reeves. He's the CEO of a company called Matter, almost spelled that way, M-A-T-T-R, uh, a really interesting company at a really interesting time. And Michael, I have to tell you, I have done, I don't know, thousands and thousands of interviews, maybe more, but uh, I have no idea how this is going to go because your company is so interesting, but so confusing and uh, seemingly mundane, but actually not at all. So we got a lot to do. Uh, that sounds like an entertaining conversation. So um, tell me, how do you describe what, so Matter used to be a company called Shawcore, and we could explain the difference between the two, but how do you describe what Matter is now? Perfect. So Matter is a leading provider of differentiated products used to expand or renew critical infrastructure. Um, what that means is we lever the core competencies that we have in materials technology and complex manufacturing to deliver high quality solutions across the transportation, communication, water management, energy, and electrification markets. That sounds like a lot, very broad it sector. Is a lot. <laughs> but, but what we do particularly well is we focus on products that operate in extreme environments where the cost of failure is very, very high. So the, the products that we make typically represent a very small percentage of a project's cost but they are critical to the functionality and the long-term sustainability of the project. So I would, I would uh, paraphrase and say, you're not necessarily talking about an electrical cord to a computer, but, uh, but, but, but uh, metaphorically, if the electrical cord goes bad, you can have a really great processor and fan and chip and everything else that you need, but none of it works until, until that critical component is, is, is working. That's right. That's right. We, we deliver the things that have the highest risk of failure and we deliver them with such great quality that they don't fail. Uh, that's the way to think about what we do. And I think when we talk about critical infrastructure, I suspect every listener here has driven on an old road or driven across an old bridge. If you live anywhere in North America, in fact, in many places around the world, you know that critical infrastructure is exceedingly old in most cases and insufficient in many cases. So there's this massive and I think very long-term investment cycle in critical infrastructure, renewal uh, and expansion that really plays very well to the business that we are today. Tell me, um, let, let's, uh, well, have, when you, so I don't even know where to start. So here I go. So Shawcorp uh, was, uh, was in some of these businesses, it was in some um, less high growth businesses. How did you decide what to jettison and what to keep? 
Yeah, I think a, a little history is helpful here. Uh, so Shawcore was founded by the Shaw family, a uh, Canadian company, uh, well over 60 years ago, uh, been traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange for more than 50 years. And for most of its life, it's been a business that focuses on products and services that support the oil field marketplace, very particularly the oil and gas pipeline marketplace. Uh, but as happens in family-controlled businesses, when the family thinks they can make a little bit of money, uh, they'll they'll buy a business here and there, and it doesn't necessarily have to connect. And what I'd say is that over the course of that 60-year period, we had become a relatively small-cap holding company. Very confusing, both internally and externally. Um, yeah. I would say what we've really focused on here this last three years is start with the premise of what is it that you actually do well? There's lots of things you hope to do well one day, but what is it you actually do really well now? Um, And we concluded that we are very, very good at materials technology, and we're very, very good at complex manufacturing. We then stopped and said, okay, let's look across this rather random collection of businesses that we own, which of those businesses play to our core strengths and which of those businesses are focused on end markets that we believe have long-term growth potential and where our product positioning is such that the margin profile is healthy. And it led us to the conclusion that there were four businesses that we really should own and everything else probably better owned by somebody else. So we've gone through a transformation here in the last two and a half years, selling off businesses, many of them related to pipeline products and services, some other, I would say, general oil field businesses, to focus down to four businesses that play to our core strengths, play to the end markets that we like, have technical differentiation and healthy margin profile, and now position us to become this this new high growth, high margin, high free cash flow infrastructure products business. So tell me, so let's, let's take the wire and cable business uh, um, and which I know a little bit about. I was once short a, actually, well, you're in Houston right now. I was, I was once short a, a, a big wire company in Houston, a fascinating business. Just, I thought they weren't going to be doing well. I, 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 you don't know this, but once my listeners do that once upon a time, I was a hedge fund manager and once upon a time I shorted a lot of stocks that weren't doing well or companies that were fakes or frauds or failing businesses. But um, the the wire business is interesting because a lot of it, most of it is very commoditized. It sounds like that's not the place you want to be. No, that's true. So um, the, the wire and cable business that we operate is called Shoreflex. Uh, we, we do not make high volumes of commoditized, low margin wire and cable. We do a great deal of technical innovation, design work to help serve customers across many hundreds of niches. And it's these niches where where our customers face the most extreme conditions, so extreme temperatures or pressures, corrosive environments, radiation. Uh, it makes up a relatively small percentage of the total wire and cable universe. But as I said earlier, it tends to be the areas where the cost of failure is highest. So we're selling relatively small volumes into hundreds of niches, but much higher margin, uh, higher technology wire and cable than the average. The, one of the, my favorite thing about those the wire companies out there was that they would have dynamic pricing that you even if you called if you were an old school contracting company you got on the phone to buy your wire your price at noon would be different than your price was at 11 a.m because the commodity the copper really price changed and so they were constantly dynamically adjusting prices and that regime of price change because it was so commoditized added another layer of cost it sounds like you're um 
uh, you don't have to be, get into that game. Well, we do generally pass through movements in the base copper material price, but it's a relatively small percentage of the overall charge for our product. So it, it's, I don't think, as volatile as the experience that you've had. Uh, fascinating business. Um, so let me, uh, uh, as I read through uh, your SEC filings or your uh, and, and, other, and others, um, what is a hydro chain stormwater management system? Sounds really cool. It is really cool. And it's one of the fastest growing pieces of our business. And I suspect in the longer term will be one of the biggest. Um, using North America as the example, uh, we see water scarcity um, starting to become a bigger and bigger issue in parts of the US, particularly on the West Coast. Uh, we see water quality becoming a bigger, bigger an issue. Uh, so what we've seen is regulatory movement over the last several decades, and it's accelerating, to very tightly manage the quality of water that you can allow to run off your property and either back into the aquifer or into a municipal system. So if you are building any kind of meaningful commercial property today, a school, a church, a distribution center, strip mall, apartment complex, hospital, the list goes on and on and on. You right. don't get a permit to build it if you do not include in your plan the structures necessary to temporarily hold stormwater that runs off your roof or your parking lot, treat it to the required quality levels, and then reintroduce it into the system. Really? I didn't, I didn't realize that. Yep. Um, so hydrochain is a, is a technology. It's all composite materials based, um, which means we are generally displacing what would otherwise be built from either steel or concrete. So longer life, uh, far lower risk, uh, total lifetime cost much lower and carbon emissions much lower as well. Uh, but at its core, this is about enabling our customers to efficiently capture, treat, and then reintroduce stormwater so that they can meet their regulatory requirements, get their permits to build their structure and to operate it. That's, that's absolutely fascinating. How big is that business? Like what, what, is, what is such a, what, let's use a shopping mall or something of that size. What is, what is a treatment system cost for a facility of that size? So on the, on the larger end of the spectrum, you could certainly be north of a million dollars for a single system. Um, I'd say on average, uh, we're probably charging somewhere between a hundred and three hundred thousand for a total system. Uh, but you can imagine there is a great number of facilities being built across North America. the uh, The addressable market today is on the order of a billion US a year for these products. And in, in, in what way is this good for our climate? Well, if you can capture stormwater in an environment where you are water poor, then you at least have the option of utilizing it. Uh, and more importantly, if you can prevent microplastics, chemicals, oils from penetrating the water system, uh, they, you know, naturally stormwater will pick up whatever is on your roof or on your parking lot, and most of it's not pleasant stuff. So if you can capture it at the source, stop it from getting into the municipal system, stop it from getting back into groundwater systems, then fundamentally you are protecting the water supply from pollution and enhancing the health and well-being of the entire population. That's really fascinating. Um, and and it's, it sounds like that also uh, works well with your fuel tank business. It does. We, we, the fuel tank business was the original business of our Xerxes brand. It's where we learned how to make very, very high quality, long lasting underground liquid storage tanks that, that have to hold things that are very corrosive. Um, 
And from there, we expanded because the first step in managing stormwater is to capture it. You need a tank to do that. So we had the tank technology and we've added to it the treatment and the infiltration components. Uh, but on the fuel side, we're the, the largest supplier of underground fuel storage tanks in North America. If if any of your listeners have been you know, filling up a car at a gas station in the US or Canada recently, they have almost certainly been standing above multiple Xerxes brand fuel tanks. There was a movement, I don't know if it was, I, I noticed it mainly in California, I, I can't recall, but it seemed like about 10 years ago, there was a replacement of a lot of tanks and a lot of garages, maybe it was more, or gas stations, maybe it was more like 20 years ago, uh, with the, and it seemed that some sort of regulation must have changed because it seemed to be going on everywhere. Yes, so in the, uh, in the late 80s, there was a federal law uh, that was enacted that said you cannot store fuel underground in the U.S., in a tank that has only one wall. So what that means is you need to have, whether it's made of steel or composites, at least a double skinned tank so that if one layer of the wall fails, you have enough time to do something about it before both have failed and you've polluted the environment. So that led to a massive process of replacing existing single wall tanks underneath gas stations across the country. Largely that process has been completed. But so what I'm remembering of 20 years ago was actually 40, and I'm just really freaking old. Okay, fine. That's what that's what we're saying here. A little more than 20 years ago. But what I'd say though is is what we see today, uh, the demand for these these tanks is driven in part by the continual replacement of aging tanks. We've gotten to a point now where some of the double wall tanks that were originally installed 30 years ago they need to be replaced. But the biggest driver is actually new fuel station construction across the U.S. I mean, certainly in my neighborhood, we've got three new gas stations under construction right now. This is a a movement that's, I think, got a a decade plus to run where we're seeing gas station operators who need to upgrade their footprints. In some cases, they need to move them because populations have moved and expanded. But in other cases, it's about renewing that footprint, going from an old, small convenience store or no convenience store footprint to a, a new, bigger convenience store footprint with gas uh, station around it. It's driven a very substantial uptick in our fuel tank business. And I think that will continue for the rest of the decade. That's so interesting. So what you're saying is the addition of the convenience store as a necessary part of a gas station also means a retrofit of the underground part of a gas station. It, it certainly does. In, in many cases, what's driving our customers to build a new station is the fact that the old station sat on a piece of land that is just simply too small to accommodate the footprint that they want today. So what's happening is old stations on small footprints are generally being retired and new stations on big footprints are being built from scratch, requiring new tanks. Uh, And a new fuel station typically would use anywhere from three to as many as 10 of our tanks. Now, you're in Houston. The company was traditionally based or may still be based in Toronto, as far as I know. Um, Why is that the case? Doesn't sound like you're from Houston. Uh, No, originally from England. No, no. I I hear no hat nor no cowboy in this podcast. (laughs) Originally from England, but uh, Houston has been home for the last uh, couple of decades. Um, The company has historically had its CEO and CFO in Toronto. We are still TSX traded and expect to continue to be so. Um, 
my predecessor informed the board of his desire to uh, retire in late 2019. Obviously, 2020 threw a, a wrench in things, but they ultimately were in a position to start looking for people to, to fill the void. Um, and uh, uh, I was approached, uh, was was thrilled to, to have the opportunity to come and be a part of the organization. And at that point, I couldn't cross the border to Canada. It was closed. In fact, it was closed until I'd been in the job for six months, at which point we'd come to the conclusion that people can actually function from places other than Toronto. And consequently, we've just adopted the... Don't tell the Canadians that. Well, <laughs> they, they may already have figured it out. Um, so we, we have a distributed executive team, a distributed organization. I'm in Toronto a lot, but uh, there's really no point to put extra burden of cost on our shareholders by moving me or others uh, to Toronto. I think the people of Ottawa would say that the Maple Leafs can't function within Toronto, but that's a different problem. Um, let me, so, but let me ask you, because you're in Houston uh, and, and because I'm endlessly fascinated by oil and gas, um, you've, you've been in the pipe business. Uh, um, it looks like, are you, are you still selling um, large diameter copper, uh, composite pipes, which is a more specialized product, or you're out? That is, that is the one remaining part of our portfolio that focuses on the traditional oil and gas marketplace. Um, I've spent my entire career until now in the upstream oil and gas marketplace, uh, oil for products, oil for services, uh, and proudly so. I think it's a crucial part of the North American economy and, and a crucial part of humanity. Um, we chose to divest of our other oil field businesses over the last two and a half years, not because they were oil field businesses, but because they were businesses that didn't play to the core strengths of the organization. And in, in the case of the largest business that we have announced the sale of, and it will close at the end of the year, uh, it was in a subsector of the oil field space that was just way too volatile for a company of our size. So what we have left is a business that's called Flex Pipe. Uh, this plays to the theme of replacing steel products with composite products, lowering risk, extending life, lowering uh, carbon emissions in the manufacturing process. This product is used to connect a newly created oil or gas well to the existing pipeline infrastructure. So it's a relatively short run of anywhere from three to six inch product that allows the fluids coming out of an oil and gas well to make it to the main pipeline. Or maybe the truck or if you're in places like Bakken or places that don't have readily accessible um, pipelines? It, it'll, it'll take it to a gathering station where it may be you know, put on a train or right. processed in some way, but away from the well site. Yep. And, and it's, you, you say flex pipe. These are, these are actually rolled out in some occasions, right? It's not like, like matching pieces of steel to pieces of steel. That's correct. If you went back 30 years matching pieces of steel to each other was exactly what everybody did. Every time a new oil or gas well was drilled and you wanted to move the fluids, you would have joints of 30 or 40 foot long steel that would be welded together. And in some cases welded together for miles to reach the, uh, the ultimate destination. It took forever. Every weld point was a failure point potentially and steel corrodes. So over, over time you had a real risk on your hands. Spools of composite pipe allow you to simply lay the pipe either on the surface or in a shallow trench. We can cover miles in a day, uh, which would have taken weeks with, with welded wow. joints of steel pipe. Our product doesn't corrode, so the risk profile is lower. The, the cost to install is lower. Uh, it's, it's really a, a high benefit to the customer base. I told you and I always tell our CEOs that I don't care about the stock. I care about you and your business. But I am curious about 
you know, the the five-letter ticker of Shaw, what is it, S-A-W-Y-F, I think is the ticker in the U.S. to trade the Canadian. Um, what is is there some sort of cleanup also, not just of the what's going on in the corporate structure, but also with the financial or even the market architecture of your, your stock? I think there's, I would describe this as a fundamental transformation of virtually every aspect of the organization from from the portfolio rationalization that we've talked about to a cultural change inside the organization to a name change from Shawcore to matter a ticker symbol change uh, on the TSX um, a gix code change that will come when we complete the sale of our one remaining oil f- um, pipeline related business so we'll move from an energy services gix code on the TSX to an industrial gix code our shareholder base has turned over almost entirely. And one of the few things that has not yet changed is that uh, US over-the-counter ticker, uh, S-A-W-L-F, is still the uh, the code. Uh, but clearly, at some point, we'll get that changed to reflect the new name of the company. Because it's a big company that's not uh, typical to be an over-the-counter stock. But, and and uh, I'm told that when you put a trade in for, the, for the, that five-letter ticker in the US, you get a quick execution in the TSX. Um, yes, ultimately, it all links back to the TSX. I think our more, let's say, our, our larger, more sophisticated investors trade in the TSX uh, stock, but certainly for US-based investors, SAWLF works just as well. well. What a fascinating business, Michael Reeves. I'm so glad you could join us here on the Drill Down podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. All right, coming up next on the Drill Down, the bite. One number that tells us a whole lot more about matter. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. All right, we're back with The Drill Down. The bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot about matter. Well, as I mentioned, uh, as the CEO of, 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 of Matter, we just heard from Michael Reeves talk, remakes the former Shaw Corps. Well, Matter has minted a lot of money from the sale of these non-core assets. Um, and what they're leaving behind, of course, is a faster growth, higher margin set of material technology businesses as discussed. But the amount of money they've taken from selling these, selling these businesses, Siobhan, is, is remarkable. The number is $442 million dollars. That's once the last deal they've announced closes at the end of this year, $40, $42 million. So the balance sheet for this company looks completely different. The business looks completely different. Higher growth, higher margins. Um, Investors don't seem to have noticed yet, but uh, hey, drill down listeners, you have. I'm not giving stock advice. God forbid I never do. But uh, I think it's just an interesting company go through some interesting changes. And as I always say, you can change the fan belt whilst the engine runs, but it ain't easy. All right, thank you for listening to the Futurums, The Drill Down. I'm Corey Johnson. Thank you to Siobhan Field and check out her latest in Forbes Australia. Siobhan, our fabulous co-host, Ben Wilson, is our fabulous editor extraordinaire. Futurums, The Drill Down is a production of Futurums, the business podcast network.